Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 99 of the Tick Bootcamp Podcast. The title of today's interview is Dancing in the Narrows, an interview with Dana and Anna Pennenberg. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Today's podcast guests are Dana and Anna Pennenberg. We are so excited to feature this amazing duo this week because Anna's book, Dancing in the Narrows, A Mother-Daughter Odyssey Through Chronic Illness, comes out this Tuesday, July 7th. I was lucky enough to read this book before the interview, and I have to say I was blown away. Dancing in the Narrows chronicles not only Dana's journey with Lyme disease, but Anna's perspective as her mother. Dana was a 16-year-old sophomore in high school when she first started experiencing the symptoms of her tick disease. She was a dancer, artist, and a very good student. At the same time, Anna was a single mother of two working as a therapist. Suddenly, Dana started to experience flu-like symptoms, including a fever, body aches, and brain fog. Anna was puzzled. She didn't know why her healthy, successful daughter couldn't get out of bed. It took 10 doctors and over a year before Dana and Anna finally received an answer. Dana was diagnosed with Lyme disease after taking an Igenix test. She was treated with both oral and IV antibiotics and still keeps her immune system healthy with herbs and other homeopathic methods. Keep listening to learn more about Dana and Anna's journey with Lyme. And remember to purchase Dancing in the Narrows on July 7th, where books are sold. Hi, Anna and Dana. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Hi, thank you for having us. We're blessed to have you. So Anna, can you share with us uh, the book that you're going to be releasing in the next couple of days? Yes, it's called Dancing in the Narrows, and it's a mother-daughter odyssey through chronic illness. And it pretty much uh, chronicles the journey I went on uh, with my daughter who became ill and no one knew why. So... Dana, can you share with us where this all began for you? Meaning, where were you at the time that you started to feel the symptoms of a tick disease? Yeah, um, I was a sophomore in high school, and it's hard to say exactly when it began because I had strange symptoms from the time I was 13, uh, but nothing that really took me out of my life completely. I had some circulation issues. I had some digestive complaints. And then I took a trip to India when I was 15 and uh, had the digestive issues increased at that point. And when I got back, everything like continued to go downhill until about six months after that. I was close to age 16. And I suddenly had this overwhelming fatigue and body pain. Like it became fluish and I couldn't get out of bed anymore. So we started pursuing it more aggressively and seeing more doctors and specialists. So Anna, can you give us a context for what was going on in your lives at the time that Dana began to show the symptoms of her tick disease? I understand that you were a single mom at that time. Yes, um, I was a single mom. I was, uh, I had just completed um, this wonderful uh, um, fixing up of my house that was near their Waldorf school. And we were very close in that community. Uh, kids would come over. I turned the garage into a big dance studio where I could do my work. And we, we had just finished that and Dana uh, went that summer to India on a um, on a, a group trip to on a um, community service kind of a trip and uh, 
she didn't do so well. She seemed to have a lot of um, um, symptoms of things, digestive. And so it was after that that uh, we started really trying to figure out what was going on. And her dad had just remarried, which was, you know, uh, it was a wonderful and emotional time. And um, she turned 16 in December. And then in January, she got this flu and never got up for months. So Anna, what was going on in your life? Meaning what were you doing for work and what were you doing in your life socially to enjoy um, single parenthood? Oh, I had uh, a lot of parents around me and teachers at the school and I uh, was very involved. I was seeing clients in my new studio working. What with type of work were you doing? I was doing developmental work with children and uh, I'm a movement therapist and uh, infant developmental practitioner. And so I was working with infants too. And um, we had dance classes in the studio. The bus from school would come over with the kids and use the studio. And um, I was teaching after school yoga to the seniors and lots was going on. So tell us about what your reaction was to Dana's early symptoms. When she first started to show symptoms, which may have been as early as when she was 13, what was your reaction to those symptoms when um, she started to exhibit those symptoms as, as a parent? Um, we actually were going to this wonderful chiropractor and for some odd reason, it seemed like Dana's feet were swelling. That was you know, I think there was probably some systemic inflammation going on, but so we were doing these foot baths and it wasn't long after that, that she kind of got the flu and couldn't, you know, couldn't get up. But, um, yeah, my reaction was, let's find out what's going on with your digestive tract. Let's find out. We also had been to a skin doctor because she had this weird thing on her leg where she had these spots and it's called morphia and the skin doctor was like well she has morphia and it's like an internal thinning of the skin from the underside it's an immune thing and there was apparently no treatment for it maybe thankfully she didn't get on antibiotics then um but it's it is actually linked to lyme but because we're in California and nobody knows what they're doing, especially back then, um, she didn't say anything. So we didn't get a Lyme test or anything. So what doctors or healing professionals were you taking your daughter to in order to diagnose the challenges that were beginning to develop at that time? Well, we went to an integrative doctor at Cedar sinai uh, It's very well-known and uses acupuncture and a variety of other um, alternative blood testing and he gives IV nutrients um, to support you know the immune system and so he was doing all of that and not knowing it was Lyme and uh, ultimately um, you know, she wasn't getting any better. And he'd say, you know, in 10, day, in 10 days, she's gonna, you know, really bounce back. And so we're well, all- We had been given some diagnoses. He 
he first saw me and he diagnosed me with mono and he said 10 days of this vitamin Myers cocktail and I would be good as new. And then when that didn't work, he sent me to the ear, nose and throat and to the rheumatologist. And I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia and I was always given the option of taking painkillers and sleeping pills, but no real treatment. Um, and then when none of that seemed to help, he ultimately said, maybe it's depression and offered me antidepressants. And at that point, we, we left that yeah. realm of medicine. Now, Dana, <laughs> did, did the series of doctors that you visited, which all largely gave you some form of a mental health diagnosis. Did you, did you visit all these doctors prior to your trip to India? No, it was after I had gotten back and when things were worse, when I was at the point where I wasn't, it was difficult to get out of bed. I had a lot of brain fog and pain. But it seems to me that the trip to India was sort of the, the, um, landmark moment where you went from having sort of these developing symptoms to a crash. Am I correct in that, in that assessment? Yeah, things got worse there. And I know we've been told that Lyme interbreeds with many other things. So it could have been a bad combination of what I was exposed to there, or it could have been stress, or it could have been the vaccinations that I received before going to India that like whatever it was, was the perfect storm. And then six months later, couldn't get out of bed. So Anna, were you concerned about your daughter's health before she took her trip to India? No, no, not really. I mean, we saw the, I think the thing on your leg happened before India, but. Yeah, and it just seemed like it was a superficial thing on my skin. And we saw the, the dermatologist, she gave me something topical. So it wasn't, didn't occur to us that there's something systemic going on. Now, when the symptoms were developing before the trip to India, did either of you or any of the healthcare professionals that you were working with suggest that perhaps you were suffering from Lyme disease? No, not in California, because the first thing everybody always asks is, um, where did you get your Lyme disease? And they, you know, because like we live in California, they think we went somewhere to go get it. <laughs> and it's prevalent in California, needless to say. Um, but the thing I remember is when she came back from India and we went to the gastroenterologist, they did find some parasites. And he said, you know, they'll go away on their own, which is like kind of not a good idea. And so so Anna, what did you know about ticks and tick diseases prior to Dana's trip to India? Did you know anything about ticks and tick diseases? Nothing. Dana, what did you know about ticks and tick diseases prior to you leaving for your trip to India? I feel like they were like this mythological creature that we would be warned about when we went to the East Coast. And actually we did spend summers on the East Coast in Western Massachusetts when I was uh around 11 and yeah. a few of those ages 10 11 uh and then ultimately when we ended up at the lyme doctor we could trace it back to being bitten around that time okay about 11. 
So let's talk about your trips to the East Coast. When, when you were taking your trips to the East Coast, did anyone ever warn you about ticks and tick diseases and urge you to protect yourself from coming in contact with ticks? No. No, I was in a summer program there and we lived on campus at Hampshire College. And uh, you know, we walked all around there and Dana did get, I remember like a short flu and I'm sure that might've been the moment. So now let's fast forward to uh, the trip to India and the challenges, uh, Anna, with getting your daughter ready for this long trip, which I'm assuming she's taking without you. Yes, it was uh, counselors and a big group of um, 10th graders or whatever she was. High school kids, yeah. And I remember we had this big celebration before I went off. I had to raise some money for the village that we were going to. And it was celebratory and our lives were, our life was so social at our house. So Dana, you now start to, um, you now start, start to um, um, do whatever it is that you're doing in India during this trip. And how are your symptoms developing? It was mainly digestive. Um, <laughs> so I just like, couldn't, yeah, I couldn't regulate. So did you think it was because of the trip or the food you were eating in a new country or some part of like this? Something was wrong with me and we couldn't figure it out. And I also had some tiredness and um, yeah, I mean, we all sort of kept track about how we were going to the bathroom as a group <laughs> because <laughs> parasites are a thing. Uh, but for some reason it wasn't changing for me and uh, yeah, it just felt like something was wrong with me and nothing I did sort of with dietary changes or with uh, supplements was shifting it. I even saw an Ayurvedic doctor in India, which was a wonderful experience, but still, you know, didn't shift my symptoms. Were you sharing these symptoms with your mom who was still home in the U.S.? I was calling her in a panic and I was like, talking to my counselor and uh, none of us knew what was going on. So Anna, what was your reaction to hearing from your daughter that she was suffering from these digestive issues when she was in India? It was kind of scary. I had finally taken a little vacation and I'm like hiking in Canada and I get these calls and she's crying and you know it's her, her digestion is backing up and she's very uncomfortable and scared and everybody was wonderful and kind and you know she made it through somehow but when she got home we definitely went to the gastroenterologist and then not a big response there um and so and the thing that i remember that happened then that was the fall she, Dana was a smart and happy, good student and homework was generally wonderful and easy for her. And she was very, she would get very involved in what she was learning. And secretly, I think that was getting harder and harder. And, you know, she got crankier and she apparently was, and you can talk about this, Dana, but 
think she started feeling like she was getting stupid. I did. Yeah, I started feeling the fog and like I was getting stupid and I felt a lot of shame about it. Um, so, so Dana, this is when you get onto the doctor carousel is what we call it here, right? You start, you, you start going to doctor, to doctor, to doctor. Mom is taking you to doctor, doctor, doctor. So talk about that now part of your journey where you're, you're having these challenges um, and you're feeling and behaving in a way that was unique for you. Um, and um, you're getting largely um, mental health diagnoses from your doctors. It's, I mean, I'm getting a little teary right now, which is strange because I haven't gotten emotional about it in a while, but it's a very lonely experience and I felt so defeated. I felt so invisible. Like there was something wrong with me that nobody was going to be able to help me with and that I was going to be stuck like this forever. Or it was going to get worse and nobody was going to know. Um, it's very helpless. Yeah. So Anna, why don't you talk to us about what your reaction was to each of the doctors that you were taking your daughter to when they were giving you, uh, they were giving you um, diagnoses which largely suggested that your daughter was suffering from mental illness? Um, well, I'm, this is gonna be a little fast forwardy, but at one point after we already knew she had Lyme and we're in the thick of it, um, I send this, article that I found to her dad and uh, it had Dr. Fallon and um, she had made it through Lyme but honestly even though she went to the clinic back east she actually healed a different way through some alternative medicines which I think she was seeing this group up north which I had already contacted. I pretty much knew so much by then and I knew everybody and where they were and who was trying other things and um, and so anyway out of that her dad decides that she should be uh, seen by him and and um, and be tested so she's already on IVs and he sends her across the country and it's like a short trip and Dana's exhausted and she's doing IVs twice a day <laughs> and she gets the psych test uh, after probably not sleeping very much on a red eye. And um, fortunately, uh, and then they did Lyme testing and blood testing and all that. Anyway, we get this like, I don't know, 20 page report maybe. Dana's already of age, so the report doesn't go to her dad. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the essential items in there for me were that she needed to have psychological support, so therapy would be nice. Uh, I skipped the part where she should take medicines for her severe depression. And, and I highlighted the one sentence that remotely uh, confirmed that maybe she had Lyme disease. It was very, you know, unspecific. And it was like, if somebody had these symptoms, they they might have Lyme and, um, and that she should be on this protocol she was already on. So that's how we moved with that. But um, that was my response to, you know, treating severe depression. You know, by the time you're in the thick of this, your whole family is stressed. There's things have changed. It's uncomfortable. Yes, we're in a crisis. That's not, uh, you know, a psychological condition. 
it's trauma. Well, but Anna, let's let's talk about that. I, I I want to walk back to the carousel of doctors that you're taking your daughter to, and the doctors failing to properly diagnose Dana. I think one of the most powerful lessons in your book is that despite your daughter being misdiagnosed for years and years and years, um, you never gave up on her and you never accepted the diagnosis, the false diagnosis that had been given to her. So that's an important, I think, message that we have to flesh out here. So I'd like to ask you as the parent, Anna, why were you refusing to accept the diagnosis, whether it be fibromyalgia, which we know is a disorder, not a, not, not a disease. So it, 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 is, it is code for uh, mental illness. And then the other types of mental illness diagnoses that Dana had been given. Why did you never accept them? And why did you continue to fight the fight the way you were? I had a young daughter and I decided early on, she's not gonna live this way. She's not gonna be permanently something. And if nobody can tell me exactly what's taking the system down and dysregulating it, then I have to keep searching. But why didn't you accept that she was mentally ill? Uh, hmm. Well, I, I could interject, yeah. I remember. Please. Because my, my mom was very clear. She noticed that there were distinct physiological changes, which was the gut, the swelling, um, so, so that's, I remember you saying that that's why you didn't accept those mental health diagnoses. But Dana, they, you know, in many cases, doctors will argue that those symptoms are psychosomatic, that they're not in fact physiologically based, but they're psychosomatic, which makes it more difficult for a parent to yeah. accept a diagnosis other than my kid's crazy. But your mom wouldn't do that. And I want you to know that in our experience in interviewing hundreds of folks who are suffering from chronic Lyme disease, that's unique. Most parents don't accept um, the responsibility of finding a diagnosis other than what diagnosis they're given by doctors. So what I'm trying to explore with you, Anna, is right. why did you fight past the bad diagnoses that so many of the leading doctors on both the East Coast and the West Coast were giving your daughter. Again, I, you know, they were correct. We were in a crisis and it was depressing and our, we were losing things in our life and we were grieving and we were totally distressed, but that wasn't the origin of what was happening. And Dan and I both felt very strongly that we didn't want to medicate her in ways that we couldn't get to the core of this. And she did not want to be on antidepressants because she wanted to feel what she felt so she could heal it. And I remember that too. I, I declined the painkillers because I said that scares me more to like not feel the pain that's happening in my body and not know what's happening. I, we both knew too much about the body and and healing to settle for that. So Dana, let's compare how everyone else in the world was treating you versus the way your mom was treating you, right? So let's, for example, how were your friends behaving when you lost the ability to be the social and intellectually capable kid and friend you had been before these symptoms began to develop? It was a mix of things and it was very alienating at school while 
you know, I was in high school at this time where people were exploring their freedom a bit more and being more social, having get togethers and parties and um, focused on their independence. And this was a time where I had to go more inward and be more dependent. Um, but, you know, at the, the beginning of it, when people kind of remembered what I was like before I got sick, there were a couple of or a few different instances where people would show up at my house and there was a day at school where like my whole class showed up on a bus to my door with like cards. Um, yeah. So, so Anna, um, tell us how you felt um, about the support that your daughter either was or wasn't receiving from her peers when she was in high school. I'm getting very emotional. It was, you know, they, they loved us and they loved her and they did come on a bus to be with her because she hadn't been in class for the term. Um, but I think what was happening was kids her age were moving on and doing what they were doing and Dana couldn't do that. And so she was very isolated and, um, you know, it was very sad. And some people actually in the beginning uh, weren't allowed to come over because their parents thought maybe Dana was contagious. We didn't know what she had. So that solidified this isolation and it was just painful. And she wasn't contagious and people didn't understand even, but we didn't really know about Lyme disease for another year and a half. So, um, you know, she just lost everything. I think it was, it was also very painful to not have a diagnosis, to have this big unknown. And then after a while, people started sort of making up stories, like maybe she's, you know, making excuses to not go to school. Um, so there was a little bit of that because there wasn't a diagnosis and it was some people, and even the doctors would say things like, uh, why don't you just go to bed at a normal time? Why don't you just go back to school? My own father said it's a confidence problem. Um, so, there, yeah, because there wasn't enough knowledge about the disease and, the, and we didn't have a definite diagnosis, there were a lot of question marks. But Dana, it seems to me you did have a diagnosis. The diagnosis was that you were suffering from a mental illness. It just wasn't a, a diagnosis that you and your mom were willing to accept because you knew it was wrong. And it sort of kept changing. First it was mono, then it was maybe it's fibromyalgia, maybe it's depression. And then, and then at another point, we didn't mention this yet, but I had a hair analysis done and I had extreme levels of arsenic poisoning. <laughs> so I was on a chelation for arsenic. So that was another confusing thing for our community was that the diagnosis kept changing. And right after all the MDs, we went to the Chinese medicine doctor who was very well known and had treated, you know, supposedly people who uh, can't get treated by Western medicine and have conditions that, you know, are not well understood by Western medicine and they end up the Chinese medicine doctor with herbs. So we were taking a lot of herbs and the whole thing was kind of focused on mold exposure. Mold and Epstein-Barr. And Epstein Bar, and we just turned the house upside down. I moved her to another room, um, and we took these. She took these herbs, and uh, so that's kind of where we went. We without going to like it's for a mental condition. Well, and, I, 
I'd like to walk back a little bit and talk to you about how you were feeling about your daughter's increasing isolation. What impact was your daughter's isolation having on you emotionally? Um, it was a huge burden, but then 24 seven trying to figure out how to help her. And I was, you know, like you, I read every, well, I didn't read anything about Lyme yet. Cause I didn't know about that, but, um, mold and Epstein Barr and, um, and then I just, you know, it, I think that the thing was, I, I had a flip phone back then and I slept with it under my pillow because she was just weak and she, you know, she wouldn't, sleep and she couldn't fall asleep at night and she wouldn't go to bed till late. Her whole nervous system was upended. And that was something I was noticing. So you can't have like, a, I mean, you can, but a mental condition, but I was watching her whole nervous system go down and that didn't seem right to me. And that's when we ended up doing the life vessel treatment in Santa Fe and taking a road trip to do that. Um, but, uh, you know, she just managing her 24 seven, um, I didn't get a lot of sleep. I was always hyperly aware if my phone rang, I'd have to run in and see what's happening and what could I do. Um, so I think I honestly, it just got to where even if people came over, it was problematic because she she was highly sensitive to just all kinds of things were disturbing. Um, and I think we didn't know that lay of the land yet. Like that Lyme disease does affect your nervous system and makes you environmentally sensitive to all these things. And I, so she was just very crabby. And she hated me at the night. We were kind of at odds because we were losing, she was losing a lot and I was losing a lot. And, um, she wasn't yet, we weren't yet on the same team. <laughs> so let's talk about that. Dana, what were you losing as the symptoms were developing? Talk to us about your loss and how you dealt with what you were losing. I think it was a very confusing storm of like unanswered questions. Stuff is happening to my body that is really uncomfortable. Um, nobody can see it. It's, I think that invisibility factor is very frightening. <laughs> like I could look fine on the surface and that was socially very confusing too to people. They're like, she looks so good, you know? Uh, and then they could blame it on me. Um, and and uh, so there was that and there, there are the hormones that happen at those ages of adolescence. And uh, we didn't, quite know what Lyme rage was yet, but we found out. It was hard um, to just navigate what are my real feelings and what are the, uh, what are the chemical responses that are happening in my body. And uh, yeah. So, I'm sorry, Anna. I want to add that she really got into a very dark wardrobe <laughs> and black. <laughs> that was happening. It was morning. <laughs> so, but Dana, one of the things that your mom shared with her readers in her book is that you turned to music 
and then ultimately to writing as you started to get sicker and sicker and sicker and you lost the ability to perform, you then turned to writing. So talk about how this, um, how this illness, which also presented itself in wearing dark clothing. And I guess, uh, I, think, I think your mom described it as, I don't remember the music, I think it was punk rock, but you, um, you, you turned to um, you know, uh, musicians right. like, uh, like Patti Smith and you started to pursue um, you know, uh, your, your musical pursuit. So talk about that with us. Well, before I got sick, I was a dancer and um, pretty, in a pretty, pretty rigorous program that was like 20 hours a week. And then suddenly I couldn't do that anymore. And I think as I started developing some of the anxiety, some of the nervous system symptoms, that that amount of dancing regulated me that I could get some of that energy out and then come out of it calm again. So suddenly I'm like trapped in the house <laughs> and it's a lot. Um, I couldn't do that. It was very sad for me. And I felt very hopeless, like, okay, what can I do? And I remember I even tried knitting because, and then I, I had this goal that I was going to knit a blanket for my new baby sister because she was just being born. And I started that project and very quickly my hands got so tired that like that sort of arthritic pain prevented me from even knitting. Um, and I, I watched a lot of movies. I watched some really good movies and then the brain fog increased so much that I couldn't get through movies anymore. I ultimately like, I, there was a point where my brain fog was so intense that I was watching like the food channel on mute because I liked watching people make things. And, uh, <laughs> and then, yeah, music was, was a big outlet for me too. Like I, Music was always a big part of my life and a way that I would connect socially with my friends. And so I did, I got more into punk rock and artists like Patti Smith and Xene and these sort of angry women who just said what they wanted to say. And uh, yeah, it was kind of, there was a voice to what I was experiencing. But you, but you, start, you started to get so sick that you couldn't even, first you couldn't play music, then you couldn't sing, and then ultimately you turned to, to writing. I mean, you, the decline was, was, was severe. So talk to us about how you kept turning to something new as your illness progressed and you couldn't first play music anymore, then sing any longer, and, and then ultimately you turned to writing. Talk about that part of your journey. Yeah, I did. I think it, it came in different waves and, and what I was able to do at different chapters and different sort of periods of being ill or being on different treatments. But yeah, I did. I got really into the writing classes that I ended up having throughout high school. And um, I found a lot of solace in the, the transcendental writers, the writers that were very interested in nature and solitude and like a spiritual connection through nature um i you know did some projects about that and 
So Anna, you and you and Dana were not on the same page at this time. You had this really angry daughter who was um, who was dressing in dark clothing and uh, and um, understanding the angry artists of her time. Um, how are you feeling about watching your daughter's both physical and emotional decline? Well, by by this time, I knew we were dealing with a long a longer illness. Honestly. At that moment, if you'd have told me it was going to be 10 years, I would have been like, what? <laughs> I thought, you know, a year was a ridiculously long period of time, or a month was even long. But uh, it kept extending. And, um, you know, I, I think as a mom, you know, you're, you're tracking how can I provide what this child needs to become herself. And that was always an underlying goal for me. And it, and under the circumstances of this chronic illness, it shifted all the time. And, but my eye was on that ball and I took her to these concerts in her dark clothing. And I waited outside for her to, you know, text me and come back out. She was very weak. And a part of me was like, this is ridiculous. You know, no mom should do this, but I did it because she needed to get out. She needed to have something to do and something to scream about. And um, thankfully that didn't, you know, it shifted. It didn't last in that mode. She then, we had, one day I just had this big moment where I couldn't, I think I just lost it and I couldn't tolerate it anymore. And I yelled at her and I said, you can be angry and we're gonna be okay but I chased her to her bedroom and she tried to lock the door and I held the handle and when she came up, I, I think everything shifted. You know, she wanted me to take her to pick up these crazy pictures she had been taking and, and uh, getting um, printed at the uh, film shop. And so I said, I'll take you, you have to come out and you got three seconds. And she, I mean, I'm sweating because I know I've flown it and she might not even open that door and what's going to happen to us. And she came out and I just put her in the car and I put on this song that a friend of ours daughter had uh, made a CD and it was, it was all about um, just the hard times and coming through. And so she's singing, Dane and I are not talking and we're picking up the pictures. And after that, we somehow managed to realize that we got to do this together, you know? So, and in your book, you describe this experience as having lost yourself in the illness. Tell me how you lost yourself in the illness and how you were ultimately able to survive both financially and emotionally when you were lost in this illness. Um, I was lost in the illness because I had a head filled of Bartonella and Babesia and, <laughs> you know, Borrelia and all the facts and all the unknown facts and all the, you know, weird things that might actually help deal with that infection and whether we should kill it and whether we should just infuse the entire body with frequencies so that the system can remember how to write itself. And, and we should do something that would go through bone and fluid and tissue and, you know, all the sort of frequency machines and medicines. And 
So I was filled with that and I wasn't very, you know, unless you really had a strong case of Lyme disease, talking to me was not a very social experience. <laughs> and so I didn't have a lot of buddies. And, um, and I just, uh, you know, um, financially, um, you know, I was divorced and uh, I had some child support at the time. And so I was trying to manage that. But most of the expenses of what really managed to help or even try to try to treat what was happening for Dana uh, wasn't under the insurance. And even when we got to the IV antibiotics, that wasn't very well covered. It was cheaper to do it outside of the insurance, as it turned out. For me, so um, that was that was a lot of pressure. Dana, can you talk to us more about what it was like to have Lyme rage? Many of our guests have danced around it, but we know it's a real thing, and we want to share an experience if you're comfortable with our listeners as to what that can be like from your end as a Lyme patient. Uh, I don't know. I can't quite separate it from my experience of adolescence and the hormones of adolescence, but it feels crazy. Um, and I knew it wasn't me. I just, in those moments, I couldn't differentiate what was real and what wasn't real. And I had the hardest time, like I would lay down there with with all those feelings and be like, what is me? And what is this chemical thing that's happening? And I couldn't quite pick it apart, but I really did not recognize myself. Dana, you also mentioned that you would use music and concerts as an outlet and something you enjoyed while you were sick, but, but did light sensitivity and sound sensitivity ever interfere with that outlet and enjoyment of music and going to concerts? Yeah, I mean, it was, I guess it's what we call spoons. <laughs> so uh, whatever I did, there was an amount of time that I had to recover for it. Uh, so if I was going to go to a concert or something, I couldn't do anything that whole day or maybe a few days. And, and although you're, it seems like your mom always knew there was some underlying health condition. Did you, Dana, ever think that maybe it was psychological or did you always agree with your mom that you knew there was something else you had to get to the bottom of? I knew it was something else. It was something physical and it was something very scary. It was, it was very scary because nobody could name it. And I knew that I didn't feel right. So Anna, now you're to a point where you and Dana are united. You finally are on the same page and you're fighting this battle together. And I'm wondering how large a role the failure to properly diagnose Dana played in this uniting of the two of you. And, and the reason I'm asking that question is because um, on page uh, 46 and 47 of your book, um, you, you actually publish Dana's beautiful poem. And uh, entitled the, the Secrets of a Seashell. And I was really moved by that. I shared with the two of you off, offline that as soon as I read that poem, I called Matt and read it to him because it was such a moving uh, poem. And one of the things that your daughter writes in her poem is, something is wrong, I say. The white cloaked men tell me this isn't so. I have a wild imagination, they say. Take these chemicals and this will go away. 
I found that to be so powerfully moving. I'm wondering if that's what was able to bring the two of you back together and now fight this fight together because you knew it was you two against the world and you weren't going to be able to conquer this challenge when um, everyone was telling you your daughter was crazy. Yeah. Um, what was the question? I. Did, you and Dana are now together, right? Finally, I mean, you went from being apart and, you know, I could tell that you're like mellow mom, but it looks like mellow mom was not so mellow when she's charging down the hallway and grabbing her daughter's, um, you know, handle on her doorway. So Zen mom didn't seem so Zen then. And that seemed like it was a, an important landmark moment in your relationship where angry daughter and angry mom finally come together and now you're fighting this fight together. So share with us, what role, how that happened and what role the, um, the uh, diagnostic problems, the medical diagnostic problems played in bringing you two together. Yeah, well, I think after that, we, you know, we, we bonded to kind of explore what were the alternatives. And that got very interesting. And a lot of those practitioners were very personal with us and they spent longer amounts of time with us. And they cared about, you know, how it was working and how it was doing and uh, they would adjust it. And so I think we felt like we were on a journey and I, I just, my sense of it was that we are on a journey and it's bigger than what I can understand and it's teaching us something. But you were both on a journey. You just weren't on the same path together. What brought your journeys together so that you're now journeying, you know, you're now on this path together. That's really the heart of the question I'm asking because I, 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 I just hear a lot of conflict. We have angry Dana, we finally have angry Anna. There's like a lot of tension and finally you two come together. What is it that brought the two of you together? Because I think that's an important lesson that folks going through this journey need to learn so that they can fight these battles together. Because unfortunately, in most of our podcasts, what we find is the sick person being abandoned by everyone, including their parents. So I think Dana knew because I told her from the beginning, we're going to stay on this till we figure it out and you're not going to live this way. And as mad as she was, I never let up. And I think we can hear from Dana, but something shifted in her where she realized that, you know, I'm doing this, we're doing this. And if she participated and joined me, we could really do this. So let's talk about that, Dana, because I think one of the reasons why uh, parents abandon their children and friends abandon friends and uh, boyfriends and girlfriends abandon each other is because the angry person is pushing people away. So what shifted in you to make it so that you were no longer pushing your mom away and you were asking, asking her to accept, um, to accept you, um, your invitation to go on this journey with her? I remember what it was. I did not expect I was going to get so emotional in this conversation, but I know that people will connect to this. Um, but I did not see a way out of it. Um, I didn't see any hope. And I just like, all I felt was discomfort, pain, um, and kind of like the loss of the life that I knew, of everything that I knew and all my abilities. Um, 
I mean, I would say, like, if I have to live this way forever, you know, I'd rather be dead. You know, I really didn't want to continue. And I didn't see a way out. Um, but what kept me, like, after that thought of, like, I don't want to be here anymore, was, was that my mom saw a way out or somehow she believed in me more than I believed in myself. So it was that moment where it's like, okay, I'm gonna do this for her. And then, you know, ultimately find out how to do it for myself. So it seems to me that the healing journey could not begin until the two of you are on the same page. Where Anna, you were essentially serving as a guide for your daughter on this journey that had no path, right? You were blazing a trail, but you were leading your daughter through this, through this, uh, this darkness. And Dana, you were finally accepting the help of your mother so that you can go on this journey together. And I think that's a really beautiful part of your story. And it seemed to me from when I read the book, and especially your beautiful poem, Dana, that it, what brought the two of you together was the understanding that, that the medical community was failing you and that the failure of the white cloaked men, um, and it always embarrassed me that it's almost always men, but the white clo cloaked men were not going to help you uh, to succeed here, that you and your mom had to go and blaze a trail together. And when you came together, the healing began. Am I right in that, in that observation, Anna? Yes. And also she allowed me to guide her for a while until she was, you know, a little more able for me to follow her because I would take her, we, we finally went to a Lyme doctor after we got the diagnosis and he came once a month to the Los Angeles area. There was no Lyme, doc, Lyme literate doctor here. And, um, you know, I had long lists of symptoms and things and kind of just so I knew that I could say what was going on because Dana would not remember and wouldn't be able to. And, um, and so she let me do that without being feeling infantilized by it which was part of us doing this together. Okay, you don't think, well, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna record everything, I'll, I'll be the one to say it, and then we can figure it out. So it was really counter to what normally developmentally happens with a teenager and a parent. And we relied on each other to get through this, whoever had the skill. So Dana, this took you about a year and a half of being sick and being miserable before you get your Lyme diagnosis. So can you walk us through how you eventually got your Lyme diagnosis and what that was like for you? Uh, so I remember that I tested negative twice on the standard test. So, you know, it was, it was a question at, from the beginning and we thought we'd ruled it out. And then you know, as we continued and my mom found out more information, she had to ask the doctor herself to uh, give me the, the hygienics lab, which was more comprehensive. And then I thought it had already been ruled out, but at that point, um, the test came back and it was positive. And we, we were rejoicing. We're like, wow, we have an answer. And now we can treat it. Little did we know. 
Dana, aside from Lyme, were there any other co-infections that came back positive from this Igenix test or any other indicators that you had another co-infection? Yeah, it was uh, Bartonella, obviously Babesia, um, oh, sorry, Borrelia, Bartonella, Babesia, Mycoplasma. Anything else? I think that was it, yeah. So Anna, let's talk about that. So we have a whole bunch of doctors who do not have the capacity to diagnose your daughter. They're also telling you that the standardized tests that they're, or the diagnostic tests that they're using to objectively diagnose her are not giving them a diagnosis either. What motivated you to continue to search to find something else so that your daughter would be properly diagnosed? I actually had a friend who knew a woman who'd been sick for seven years and was getting well and that she had a full-blown chronic case of Lyme disease. And that's where I found out about Igenix Lab. And before that, I was tracking Dana's symptoms. And, the, and if I looked it up on the internet for Lyme, they were all listed. Every single one of them she had. So I was like, she has Lyme disease, but then nobody believed me. And so with the, then I demanded that you know, they uh, order this test and I can't order it not being a physician and I can't read the uh, result not being a physician either. So, uh, so we did that and it came back positive. And then we had to drive to San Francisco to find a Lyme doctor. So now Anna, we just heard Dana say that she was very excited to finally have a diagnosis. What was your reaction as a parent when you heard that your daughter finally had a Lyme disease diagnosis? I remember that day. I remember the letter taking it out of the mailbox. I remember walking into the house and I was actually simultaneously joyous and um, terrified that she had this, she really had this serious thing because I'd been reading a lot about it. And she didn't just have a few symptoms. She had a lot going on. So I didn't even know about chronic Lyme, honestly. I just knew about Lyme. Okay. So you were excited because you had a diagnosis, but you were really scared because you saw that the battle that she was about to face was going to be substantially greater than you had anticipated. Yeah. So um, how did you react to Dana's excitement about having a diagnosis, even though you yourself had reservations and, and on some level greater fear, how were you reacting to your daughter's celebration of a diagnosis? I mean, there's a part of me that was pretty schooled in trying to be upbeat around her and uh, make, you know, make her feel strong and comfortable about whatever we were doing. So I came in and it was like, hey, wow, look, we finally got a diagnosis, you know? And, and so she's excited and I'm, I'm going like, wow, I hope I get the best help and I hope it's, you know, now we're gonna for sure have to do some pharmaceuticals. And, um, you know, I didn't tell her that part that it's, it worried me. We were also, she was still on Chinese herbs too, by the way. <laughs> and I took her to another Lyme doctor before we went up north to, to the other one. And I'd already gotten like the best of the 
uh, herbals that were on the market by research nutritionals for Lyme disease. You know, somebody had given us those. And so I came up there with this brown bag of like all the stuff that's going to support her system while she may have to do the pharmaceuticals. And he pretty much told me like, yeah, you aren't going to need that bag. <laughs> so Anna, before we go forward with exploring the um, healing journey after the diagnosis, and Matt's going to spend some time exploring that with you and Dana, I'd like to talk to you about your other child because um, you were a single mom, but not just a single mom parenting Dana. You also had a second child um, during, uh, during this time in your life. So talk to us about Kayla and how Kayla was dealing with all of the challenges that her sister was facing and how do you believe Kayla was reacting to you pouring more and more of your time and energy into caring for Dana's illness? So yeah, it was, it was uh, Kayla's, when Dana got sick in January, that was Kayla's last semester of high school, big time, big goings on, prom and, you know, lots of big senior stuff and a trip to New York with the class and all this kind of stuff. And I was, uh, you know, pretty taxed, but doing both. And the sad time was when Kayla, the night before their graduation, they do a big um, performance. They do, they put on a, a play and Kayla had written a one act play and it was brilliant. And she got the whole class involved in it. And it was just spectacular. And Dana, uh, I think Dana couldn't make it to that. And then we went to, so I was there. And then we went to her graduation the next day and Dana arrived and had gotten dressed beautifully. And she sat down and my best friend was there. And Dana said, I, you know, she kind of humped over and she said, I can't, I can't stay. And so she had to leave immediately, but I got to stay. My friend took her home. And that was sad for Kayla because her sister missed her graduation. She missed her play. And, um, and I remember, uh, actually maybe Dana was there for the play, something. I, maybe I took her home and then I came back. So I missed a minute of being at school. Everybody was milling around and hugging everybody. And I showed up and Kayla was already crying because I missed a few moments. And it just was so brilliant. I, I, it's hard to be all there for both kids at major moments and, um, and still care for someone who's, you know, falling down. And, um, and then she went off to college and there was, she was very angry a lot of the time. Uh, she lost her sister, Dana couldn't visit. Um, she would come home on weekends. And it was a different house. It was like a little hospital, trying things that, you know, we had to eat certain things and do certain things. And we, I had installed these sound doors so Dana didn't have to be plagued by sound that she couldn't tolerate. So it was a very, yeah, it was really hard. And Kayla's a fiery soul, so she didn't like sit down and have a chat with me about it because I really wanted to hug her and say we're doing our best and we're trying to get her, you know, so she feels good and let's all do it together. But she just is fiery and she was mad and she was trying to do her own thing and in college and 
So it was really years later when that all unwound for all of us. So although you're a Zen mom, you didn't have a Zen Kayla. Not really. <laughs> but she's an amazing dancer. <laughs> so Dana, walk us through what it was like now going to this Lyme specialist and what treatment he prescribed for you, he or she prescribed for you. Okay, so, well, we, uh, yeah, we saw this specialist up north in Northern California. And when we got there and kind of talked through my symptom history, we discovered, oh, I had probably had this for about seven years. We found out that the skin morphia was a symptom of Lyme, little did we know. And that all of that sort of cascade was part of this picture. Um, and then he prescribed nine months of oral antibiotics. I can't remember what if it was after that or before that, there was a Lyme doctor who looked at my lab and said I was in the top 10% worst cases he'd ever seen. I needed to go on the IVs. Um, and then we were frightened about that because, you know, we didn't want to risk losing my gallbladder. Um, you know, I was a child that grew up on herbs and homeopathics and organic food. I had never really been on antibiotics like this before, uh, but we, we agreed, okay, we'll do the nine months of the orals and, and then we'll be through it. And do, you, do you recall the type of antibiotics, Dana? The oral antibiotics that you were on? It was yeah. a combination. It was two antibiotics for three months and then a switch to another set. And then a switch to another set. So, Anna, let's talk about that for a second. You, Zen mom, healing arts professional, working with uh, alternative um, medical professionals now move over to an LLMD and your daughter is, is taking um, antibiotics. How did you feel about that? I didn't believe the antibiotics, honestly. And so we were also trying to support her immune system at the same time, but I realized that that was not his expertise. So he was gonna do the let's kill the Lyme and we were gonna do the let's help persist and deal with that and even detox the debris from the um, you know, all the die off and everything. And so you probably read this book because I know you read everything, but Dr. Buner, I even called Dr. Buner. So we're doing his herbs at the same time. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, we were just going to do the, we were going to do the big guns if we had to. And he seemed, he wasn't, he really didn't know where she'd be in nine months. He just knew this is the first step. Me, I knew nothing about all of this. And I thought nine months of antibiotics, my God. So, you know, that, that was kind of maybe convincing to her dad that she had Lyme disease and um, so, and anyone else. So, um, okay, we were gonna do it, but we were gonna do it smartly. And Dana, what was that like for you when you first started the antibiotics? Did you have a Herx reaction or a reaction to the antibiotics? Did you feel better or did you feel the same about the same? I 
during that period, I remember feeling worse and about the same and never, never better. And despite the fact that you never felt better throughout that nine month window, did you stay on the antibiotics hoping they would eventually work and you never saw any results at all from them? Right. I stayed the course um, and I didn't have any results. Was was the same and worse. And from your pre-interview questionnaire, it seems like you've tr you tried a very wide variety of different oral antibiotics over those nine months. So it wasn't like you just stuck with one and it didn't work. You tried almost every antibiotic they use for Lyme disease, right? Right. To get every infection. And now talk to us about when you finally said enough is enough, I'm going to stop this because it's just not working. And then what your next steps were after the failed oral antibiotics. It was a process. Um, we, we did those oral antibiotics and then we went back to alternative methods and some orthomolecular treatment, which was, um, you know, natural infusions and supplements. Uh, and when that didn't work and I was spiraling down again, we went to the heavy duty IV antibiotics. It was, it felt like at the time it was the one thing that I hadn't tried. And, uh, so, so I arrived back at the LLMD who then gave me the IV antibiotics and it was a, it was at that point in time, I had gotten into college and I was excited to go and I just had to get myself feeling better enough to go. And I started these IVs and continued to go downhill rapidly. Um, and I would arrive at her office every month with a new list of symptoms and she would give me a new list of supplements. Uh, and I felt like I was never turning that corner that everyone talked about. Um, and then eventually it got so severe. Uh, I had really bad pain in my liver and in my head. And I called her at two in the morning on Thanksgiving and she said she had an ambulance ready for me. And so I decided that um, that wasn't gonna help anything. So at that point, I took myself off of the medications and I read a book by a, another doctor and decided to, to go and see him instead. So Anna, let's talk about the uh, antibiotic journey. Uh, one that you really didn't um, support, but did, I guess, support because it was, it was part of your daughter's journey, both the oral and the IV antibiotics. Um, what was your thought process when she was on these two different courses of antibiotics and they weren't working? Um, wow. Okay. Well, you know, we were just pressing forward. And as when you start killing the bacteria, you feel lousy and you're herxing. And so you never know if it's a herx and the other side of it's going to be good or, you know, you're, you're going to like have a crisis and a detox and everything will get better after that. Um, 
I pretty much felt like her brain, you know, it had gone to a lot of places, you know, she had breathing and heart issues and uh, brain fog and so, um, and pressure in her brain. And it was really scary every inch of the way. Every time she hooked up to the IVs, uh, we had various incidences with that. I feel like she did feel a tiny bit better in the maybe first month, but it went on for five months. It never got better. She got excessively excessive edema. She looked like twice her size. And I just kept like normalizing things like, you know, this is just part of what has to happen in order for her to get through this. Because you always hear the stories of the people who IV'd, you know, and then they all got through it and they don't, they're not on anything, but most people are still on their antibiotics if that's what they're doing. And um, so at the five month mark and her head pain and her liver pain, and, and so we just took her off everything and we had a big celebration with the trash can and threw a bunch of stuff away. <laughs> and, uh, and we were kind of in no man's land again, but at least things were calming down in her system. And um, we, we had done the most serious treatment available and it hadn't worked. So Anna, it sounds to me that part of the reason why you wanted to support your daughter's um, path through the antibiotic system was because um, her dad wanted that. What role did um, your ex-husband's perspective play on you supporting Dana going down the antibiotic path? Actually, it was the, the Lyme doctor who was really open-minded and always listened to me about what I was researching and doing and what I preferred. But basically he was the one who said she was in his top 10 of sickest patients. And uh, her dad was there at that visit and which he, he really didn't make it to any, he, you know, he wasn't coming to the other ones, but he happened to be at that one. And um, so I think it was clear the neurology, you know, her walking across the room did not look good. And um, so we actually decided to do it because of the Lyme doctor's best and strongest treatment for somebody as advanced as her was the IVs. And so I think she or I could not say to ourselves, you know, well, we never did that. And so it's why you're not well. So we did it. And, it, and because she turned out later when we had some other testing done, genetic testing, um, her system didn't do well with sulfur drugs. It didn't do well with a whole bunch of things that she had been taking for five months. And her system was very aggravated and very backed up. So, and I know Matt is going to want to explore this point with the two of you in great detail, but I'm going to ask him to pause for one second because I need to ask you about Kayla. Uh, you know, after reading your book, and, and it is a beautifully written but very painful book, and my heart kept breaking for you more than anyone else, quite frankly, because while you're on this terrible journey with Lyme disease attacking your daughter, Dana, um, and, and, um, and, challenging your life in so many different ways. Your second child came down with tick disease. Can you share with us when that happened and what impact that had on your capacity to uh, parent Dana through these challenges? Um, yeah, it was Jovian. I mean, I just, you know, 
you you keep growing because you have to parenting expands you anyway i felt stretched in ways i never dreamed i would be uh in my heart and in my stamina to just keep going and be uh, a kind parent and so she comes back from africa and she's not well like on the plane and i go to pick her up and we and she goes from the plane to the hospital and i can't even pick her up. I'm in my new sweater. I'm all excited because I'm going to see her and it's Christmas time and we're going to go to my sister's and I'm, I'm at the hospital and she has, she is uh, red and spotted and has a very high temperature and they, they're trying to figure out what she has and they've done blood work. And I am suited up to go see her in that room. Um, and, uh, I'm trying not to lose it, but I lose it before I go in. And then I come in and I'm like, hi, it's so good to see you, Kayla. And, you know, she does not feel well. And we end up taking her to a better hospital and getting her situated. And she has a Mediterranean spotted fever from a tick and, um, or otherwise known as rickettsia. So fortunately that is not a chronic condition, but oddly enough, they were both then on the same antibiotics, IV. <laughs> and uh, the good part of that was that somehow it helped Kayla to understand what Dana had been going through. And so in some really magnificent way that I could not orchestrate, the universe provided uh, a way for her to kind of shift her thinking and behavior and understanding of what was happening to us. Anna, to, <clears throat> to speak about the genetic testing that you were speaking about earlier and try to help some of our listeners that are thinking that may help them as well, can you let us know where you got this genetic testing and how the results helped you determine what treatment would work for Dana and what treatment would not work for Dana based on those genetic testing results? Yeah, I'm trying to remember the name of the lab. It's it's like, I remember it. It's a, it was called Genova. Genova, yeah. And so we were at this alternative clinic, and uh, these kinds of labs are not used by the Western MDs, so typically. So uh, although um, the doctor there, you know, ran these kinds of tests, and that was extremely helpful, and in my mind, that is a really good idea to do so that you can head off any of the uh, really bad side effects that you might get because your system doesn't do well with certain drugs. Uh, but we found this out after she'd already done a, a lot of things that were you know, hard for her system. And uh, so once we did that, it kind of, the best part of that was that it confirmed that we were really smart to get off the drugs. and. Um, So now that you're off the antibiotics, the IV antibiotics, and you're realizing they just weren't working, what were your next steps? You've kind of exhausted all options, at least that you're aware of at this point, right? You did the oral antibiotics, you did the natural herbal therapy, and now you did the hardcore IV antibiotics. So what were you thinking at that time and how did you proceed? It kind of went into detox mode a lot and we got the far infrared sauna, the medical grade, and we'd actually had a sauna before that. 
uh, years before, and but now we're in full detox mode again, thinking that you know we really need to clean out her system because uh, she just she was she had a lot of water retention and you know head swelling and and inflammation. So and we had we also bought uh, a foot detox bath that we did. So, you know, we were doing that like every day, 15 minutes, um, we had a whole regimen. And part of the regimen came from this clinic that we went to, which, which used, you know, some um, infrared, ozone, um, all kinds of, um, some frequencies and some homeopathic. He was trained in biological medicine. Um, I remember this chapter. Yeah, there was a detox phase. And then after three visits to him, and when he ultimately said that he couldn't help me anymore, he then, he noticed on their testing, uh, they did this sort of thermography, I believe. It, it, test the temperature in the body. They do this in Europe. But he saw like that there was significantly less blood flow to my brain than there should be. Um, so he had me go do some tests, some very expensive imaging in Las Vegas, uh, some MRIs to, to check out the jugular veins because some people were finding that they had constriction in the jugular veins. Uh, that ultimately didn't show up. And we entered this chapter of like, okay, now we're free range, like to try everything that we thought was crazy. Everything I was too skeptical to try before. So I tried all the, you know, played around with my diet a lot and um, researched this doctor up in Northern California, like juicing cannabis and... <laughs> Did you, while you were on the antibiotics, were you doing anything to counter the damage that the antibiotics were doing to your gut? Were you aware at that time of the damage and taking steps on your own? Yeah, I was always on a really good probiotic and I always had a very clean diet. Um, it's just, I, I was getting so run down and I became allergic to things. I became very environmentally allergic. I couldn't even walk out of the house without smelling car exhaust and wanting to faint. Um, so, and I, oxygen. oh yeah, I had, I had a difficult time breathing. I was on oxygen. Uh, this was the worst, the sickest I'd ever been on those IVs. And that was a result of being on the IV antibiotics, correct? Yeah. And, um, you know, what? what's the possibility is that I had so many stealth infections that, it, you know, the antibiotics couldn't get everything and maybe was driving the infections deeper. Um, Dana, on, on your pre-interview questionnaire, there's two things you mentioned that you did as far as treatments are concerned that, that are of interest to us, and that's the stem cell therapies and your placenta injections. So can you start by talking to us about what the stem cell therapies was like for you and if it helped you? I didn't do stem cell therapy, um, but I did do placenta injections. And that actually, when we were, we were kind of in that no man's land where we were experimenting with diet and juicing cannabis and then 
um, we were then presented with an opportunity, like we found out through some friends that it was helping people to do placenta injections. We found um, the extract, it came from, from Japan and uh, I started using that and it did help calm the symptoms down a bit and regulate me. And simultaneously I started doing ACT not sure if you're familiar with that. Um, wonderful man who runs that. Um, Gary, forget his last name, but it's sort of it's a frequency. It's a way of treating with frequency, and he has these groups that meet like on the phone, um, and then he was able to send me frequencies for all the infections and for some of the stealth infections. And I had the biggest breakthrough with the stealth infection frequencies. Um, and it was like everything that got clogged up with the antibiotics started purging from me. And uh, finally had some relief from symptoms. So all of these things that are, were viewed as quote unquote crazy actually helped you the most in the end, but you sort of were weary to use them because of how others would perceive you for taking these types of therapies, it sounds like. Yeah, and I, I wasn't convinced myself. Like I didn't know that, I didn't know that they were valid ways of treating or that they were as legitimate as the, the ones that were you know, recommended first. So can you mention some of these other, you know, quote unquote, crazy therapies. Uh, some of them you mentioned in your pre-interview questionnaire are magnet therapies, the biomat, uh, advanced cell training, a chi machine, uh, one I don't even know how to pronounce, Medsonics, I believe. Yeah. Um, well, actually, something that helped me manage symptoms, like very significantly, was when we had gone to, uh, gone to New Mexico to do life vessel therapy which was it's also a frequency type of treatment um and there was a guy there who was doing these ex this experimental treatment with magnets and he had he had a tumor in his chest and he had used this magnet like he had it in his pocket all day or whatever and he had this magnet on the tumor and it shrunk the tumor so he like cured himself and then he was trying to help other people and he built these big magnets. He built a big magnet plate that kind of takes the space of the torso and he would lay on it front and back and ex extremely strong magnets. Uh, some of them, there was one that was more targeted for detox and one that was more for viral stuff. Um, and then I, they were just doing it as a trial at the clinic and they used me. And uh, there was a significant change in the swelling that I had. My mom, after I got off the magnet plate, my mom could see my knees for the first time in like a year. And so we ended up coming home with that magnet plate and that got me through high school. I would get up you know, at 4.35 in the morning, do a treatment on that magnet plate, go to school for a few hours, come back home and use it again and get a few more hours of my day. 
Um, so it really helped with circulation and the swelling. And, and then what else did we do? Well, the so biomat really helped. So that what that is, is it's filled with amethyst and tourmaline crystals and it uh, uses far infrared heat. It heats up and that helped the pain significantly. It really helped me sleep. I slept on that for years. So it seems like these targeted frequency and magnet therapies really work the best for you. Can you describe for our listeners what the frequency therapy actually does and how it works, you know, at a, at a basic level? Um, well, depending on what you're talking about, we did a few different kinds. We did the life vessel, we did a microcurrent we used, um, and we did ACT. Uh, so the frequencies, um, you know, oftentimes the, the physical medicines would become so burdensome on my body to process and I didn't even know what was getting in or what was doing what it was supposed to do. But the magic of frequency is you, you don't have to process it in the same sort of way. It goes more directly in and um, I don't know really how to describe it. It's a, it's a current that gets through to the body um, and it has a resonance in the body. Uh, and there are many different types of frequency treatments. And, and with Rife as well, we tried Rife. Uh, I did not have very much success with that. I know some people do, but it really caused major herxing. So I would get very sick from it and I didn't, I couldn't get through that part of it. But, you know, that shows that it's doing something. <laughs> so Anna, I'm assuming you were doing all the research to find all these alternative uh, treatments. How are you doing the research? Where were you finding uh, these alternatives and how were you paying for it all? Um, <clears throat> well, at one point I dipped into some money that my father had left for Dana um, and we bought a very expensive machine which we thankfully returned uh, because after sleeping on it um, night every night for less than a month they told me that I had a month of trial and then when I returned it they told me no one had ever returned the machine before but um, it did a lot of things it had some ozone and it had some scalar um, waves yeah scalar waves and you know her lymph system was always very clogged up and slow and so that had given her at the clinic it had given her some relief and so we thought if we could just get her system to calm down and move well it could process everything so that's why we bought the machine and um, the doctor thought it was a good idea but in the end, it didn't really do what we wanted it to if we applied more time of using the machine. And so we sent that back. But, you know, I was, I was getting, uh, <clears throat> I was hearing a lot about Rife from various places. And I had a wonderful little Rife machine that I was using because I was testing it myself. And then I, I remember I did like one minute on each knee for Dana 
and we did see some results, but it was always the rifle difficult because she was so reactive to it and it, it um, caused more crisis than help in a way. So that, um, but they had like a whole mapped out um, frequency protocol for it. So we just kept playing around with that. We actually bought another rifle machine and tried it again after we knew someone who had, was doing so well and she had gotten through a lot with it and she came and let us try Dana to try her machine. Then we ordered it, uh, but Dana didn't make it through a week of that. We slowed it down. So the electrical frequency machines that were using microcurrent, but it's electrical current, her, her system did not like that. Is that the PEMF? The, the what, the EMF? Uh, the PEMF, is e that what that no, is? No, we didn't do that. Oh. oh. It wasn't PEMF, it was microcurrent. Um, yeah, I think there there is a lot of us with Lyme, we get sensitive to frequencies and we get sensitive to EMF. So there's sort of that line where we, we have to dance that line of like what's helping and what's harming. And some of those frequency devices have EMF. And the biomat actually has something that mediates the EMF and protects you, uh, even though it, it is plugged in and it's using, you know, electronic. But um, but the advanced cell training was machine free, and yeah. and he had you know he devised these codes from a variety of of frequencies that he learned in various disciplines, some of which were originally electronic but um those are the those are the codes that that really helped dana and it's you know it's kind of out there because you're listening to letters and numbers and it makes no sense to your brain but meanwhile you feel something and uh that was great but once she had the massive clearing from the stealth infection um, codes she wasn't well enough to do other codes so we kind of didn't continue with that. I kind of, I did continue after a while, after I recovered from that and um, I just plateaued again. Like I, I got to the next, like I got a little bit better and I plateaued again. So we had to move on. We ended up moving on to more of like energetic healers. But which I want to mention um, Daisy yeah. who helped us helped Dana in many ways, especially during her college years. Yeah. And that was um, a lot of uh, homeopathic and tinctures and, and all, you know, herbal and, um, and nutrients like um, with, uh, what's the name of those? Kind of uh, systemic medicine. I don't remember, um, but yeah, Daisy, really, she really helped me get through college and we consulted with her every week and she was just a really good friend and advocate on a similar journey. And also treated the parasites really well. I think what's wonderful about Daisy is she's, Daisy White is actually a former podcast guest and she had shared her journey with, with Rich and I as well. 
And she learned all of these things from being a Lyme patient. And she learned what worked best for her and has used those things and adapted them to help other people and just provide guidance. And many of our past podcast guests have benefited from a relationship with her. And many of our, our friends and followers on social media have benefited from her as well. So we couldn't agree more that Daisy is an excellent resource for those that are suffering with Lyme right now. So, Anna, tell us about what your life was like during this window of time. Um, did you have a social life? Were you able to work? Uh, or were you just entirely dedicated to researching um, new protocols to assist your daughter past her various plateaus? Um, it was pretty much all about, yeah, assisting my daughter. I didn't really have a social life. It was my, I mean, in the thick of it, uh, my, my social life was basically driving to Whole Foods on the day that I knew the chair massage person who I liked would be there and, and then shopping and just getting some solace from seeing everything ordered on the shelves and people relating to one another. And I would get uh, a meal I would get, you know, from their hot food bar so I didn't have to cook for myself and I could eat whatever I wanted because at home I pretty much ate whatever I was making for Dana and and then I would you know get in the massage chair and by this time he kind of knew me and so that was my social life I got to talk I got my shoulders massaged and uh, I got food and then I would come back home um, and the only other thing I pretty much left for was my Pilates which was two minutes down the road and just get some exercise. Um, so everything, you know, the, the environmental sensitivities made it really difficult to even have my own, our own family come over, you know, um, it was hard for Dana to even talk on the phone and have, have enough concentration or energy to have a conversation. So, yeah, everything kind of shrunk down and, you know, the aftermath of that was quite uh, an interesting learning how to come out of that kind of trauma that ensued. And what's interesting now is that we're in the midst of, you know, coming out of COVID and hopefully, and a lot of, there's so many parallels, you know, of having lived at home. Of course, we had an illness we were dealing with, but a lot of people are at home just staying safe, uh, but coming out and coming out into feeling comfortable and social and feeling like, you know, it's safe to do that. And it's, uh, it's going to be, I feel like I've been through this already once, you know. <laughs> Dana, as far as the, the food sensitivities, the environmental sensitivities, the light and sound sensitivities, do you, were you able to overcome any of these obstacles? And today, are you able to now manage more, you know, light, sound, food, uh, smells, things like that? Yeah, and it was definitely a gradual process. And uh, I kind of, there was less of society that I resonated with at that point. And I just... I was watching a lot of documentaries about the earth and about, you know, larger environmental issues. And um, I got really interested in what it would be like to, you know, live more in nature 
and I felt like I, I felt like I didn't belong in society anymore. <laughs> and ultimately, when I w when I came through that phase and up, I found a farm that I could live on and do like a work exchange through through Woofing, which is an organization where you can work on an organic farm and uh, do that sort of work exchange. Um, so I lived in this intentional community um, where, yeah, it was just like a large piece of land and we grew our own food and I lived with a family and I just, yeah, I found a lot of sort of relief in, in connecting more with nature again, which is ironic because Lyme disease makes you a little bit afraid of nature. <laughs> Um, but yeah, getting more connected to where things, where my food came from and, uh, and then I ended up going to college more, more in nature, back to tick land and in Vermont. Um, so Anna, talk to us about, um, that experience. You, you had this chronically ill daughter who was entirely dependent on you for many, many years, and now she's taking her first step out of the out of the nest uh, and she's going to work on a, on an organic farm. How did you feel about that and what concerns did you have? Well, you should have seen what went into the car in order for that to happen. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of things, including the chi machine. Dana was kind of like a little traveling alternative therapy. <laughs> yeah, somehow secured a mattress from my sister up north and Dana moved into a room in the house, which was really nice of these, these farm people, because usually the interns would sleep in the barn, which of course would have too much mold for her. And so uh, she was doing pretty well, and she was really operating um, the, uh, with the CSA they were running. And, you know, I was in touch with her, and, you know, there were ups and downs, and um, it was supposed to be like a four-month thing, but we could see that she was kind of getting worse again and not as uh, um, strong. And so I then drove up and we brought her back home for a little while before she went to college. And uh, yeah, those transitions were really, I mean, I needed space and I wanted her to, you know, this was kind of a, a long trajectory of her having independence and I wanted her to have it and she was so enthusiastic about learning everything at the farm and being able to participate and um, so that was great she got a lot out of that when she came home it was again another moment to shift things and you know how do we adjust it now in order for you to go across country that was a bit scary um, and you know if it, the thing about what's happened with us is there's been enormous amounts of angels with us in the form of people who've been kind. And, um, you know, when Dana got to college, somehow we found this apartment, a little house with an upstairs apartment with a lovely older man and his wife who I could call any time. And he would, you know, he'd get the truck and help Dana get that little desk in there or whatever she needed, you know. And, um, you know, the people at the post office, I, I knew them well because Dana was there for four years and I 
I knew the guys at the post office because I would send medicine and some of it was had to be cold and stay cold and get to her at a certain time. And sometimes the, the guy at the post office would drive it over to her apartment. I'm not kidding. So, well, let, let's talk about that part of your journey now, Dana. Um, you're um, going finally from this state of dependence to independence. You 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 uh, spent some time on the farm, and it has some uh, some. There are some positive elements to the experience, but then unfortunately, you you started to get sick again, so you had to come home. Did you have any real concerns about going across the country now to Massachusetts, where uh, you were going to Bennington College? Uh, there was a little transitional period before I went to school where I stayed with uh, my boyfriend at the time. He was in Boston. So I stayed with him in his tiny little apartment for a month. And um, that was helpful. Like, you know, he was in school at Berkeley School of Music. And I would just kind of like stay at the apartment, do my treatments. I, it helped me kind of ease into moving across country. And then from there, I drove, I had my car shipped. And then I drove up to Bennington with my packed car. But I had a couple of friends, you know, on, that, on the East Coast that I stopped and stayed with that helped me ease into that transition. Um, and it definitely was new and a little disorienting. I think, again, what's scariest about what I was experiencing was that it was invisible. And I felt like a lot of times I was carrying that, this burden that no one could see. And the fear also of like that I was so reactive to external factors and environmental factors and some of it's hard to kind of recover from that because you have PTSD from that. <laughs> and like, even if I get less reactionary to certain smells or things like that, I remember being so reactionary to it. So I'm afraid of like being exposed to things. Um, so it was a balance of like easing into a more, um, integrated into society kind of life, but also taking the measures that I needed and creating that, like the safe space in my home in the ways that I needed. So then I'm intrigued about why you went so far away. You went from, you know, spending almost every minute of every day with your mom. Uh, and then you went literally to the other side of the country um, from where she was living. Why did you move so far away? You know, I was in the process of applying to colleges and I was interested in going to a liberal arts school. Um, and I looked at, I applied to a few different schools. I was really drawn to the landscape on the East Coast and I had such fond memories of being there as a kid, even though that was where I had gotten bitten. You know, I knew that I didn't have the knowledge then about ticks, but I did, you know, at that point. So I wasn't too afraid. Um, I knew that I could take safety measures and be okay. Uh, I was really drawn to the landscape and to nature. And uh, when it ultimately was between Lewis and Clark in um, Oregon and Bennington College in Vermont, um, 
there, there were a couple of factors is that Bennington had has a dance program and Lewis and Clark did not. And also at Bennington, the admissions counselor, you know, was gonna write that school off because it was too far and too cold and whatever, too remote. But the admissions counselor pursued me and she asked me to have an interview. And um, then she offered me a scholarship. And then even though I had to defer twice because of the way treatment was going, she continued to come visit me, bring me flowers, send me books. Uh, there was a real personal connection with the place and I felt like they wanted me there. Another one of your angels. Definitely, and I mean, she really was an angel and unfortunately she ended up getting sick herself. Um, she ended up getting brain cancer in my junior year and didn't make it so truly, you know, she was an angel to so many, um, Chrissy, yeah. And <laughs> so Anna, talk to us about um, how you felt as a parent having uh, this person who was in your charge for longer than you would have expected now moving across the country to uh, attend college. I, I had a lot of PTSD and Dana was not well, so it wasn't like, oh, she's, she's just my college kid, you know, having a, you know, she would also get very taxed from get going to class and coming home and doing your homework and trying to have her, you know, the brain fog be cleared enough to read and, and the pressure of getting things done. Uh, the, the dance department turned out to be amazing. And, in, and the, her being able to learn and really engage in her body and be embodied in this illness was really a gift because uh, you know when she made the choice to go there because it had a dance department, I was like, <laughs> on the couch mostly. Okay though, that's a good idea. And, and Dana is actually an amazing choreographer and uh, dancer and she choreographed this incredible piece for her senior year where they built a tub for her a six inch deep tub and she performed in water outside and she choreographed for like six dancers and um, it was an amazing piece. So um, it, was, it was touch and go. She cried terribly at the end of the first year. She barely made it through. She didn't maybe want to go back. Daisy was very helpful because Daisy had actually also gone to Bennington and she and I both felt like whatever it takes, we want her to have this college experience and to succeed at something. And it's critical during the healing of this illness. And um, so, you know, we just, it was a lot of work. Oddly enough, she wasn't living with me during the months she was at college, but in between she was and, and just managing the, uh, the distance uh, because I didn't really have, I didn't trust anyone and I didn't have a physician or anybody she could like really check in with there. And so it was all remote, pretty much. So now let's talk about the transformation that the two of you have made. 
I'm sure neither of you would have believed that your life would have taken an arc where you've now become Lyme advocates and where you're spending so much time and energy writing to help other people. So Anna, talk to us about your book and what inspired you to write this beautiful book that you've written. Uh, well, honestly, I think I was inspired because I wanted to find out what happened to me. And in writing it, I learned a lot and healed a lot. And, you know, the family is deeply affected by this illness that is so um, complex and very different for each individual, the journey and uh to continuously pursue what is helping and to delete the things that aren't helping. And, um, you know, I, I felt like it was adventuresome and it was, it would be a fascinating story to hear. What's what really opened my eyes after I had written it and was already at a publisher was that there were so many more stories like ours, um, maybe not exactly by any means, but certainly always the going to many doctors and not knowing that it's Lyme and people not believing you and all of that. And um, I'd been so isolated when, when it started for us in 2007 and even when we knew it was Lyme. So it's been enriching for me to see what else has been written and, uh, you know, all of it. I think... Uh, my book does give you this relational lens and the lens of the family and the, um, you know, a window into anyone's life where, you know, it is a journey and you may not plan on certain things happening in your life, but they do contribute to what you become. And, you know, Dana has become actually an amazing healer in her own right. And this was not a university that she was sent to. This was an experience she had in her life with herself. So Dana, talk about how you feel to be the subject of your mother's beautifully written book, or at least one of the subjects of, of the book. And um, how do you think your experience is going to help other families get through this without the type of pain that two of you, actually the three of you have had to face uh, on this uh, Lyme disease journey? Uh, I'm so proud of her and I'm so thankful for her. I'm alive because of her and not just because she gave birth to me, as I say. Um, and uh, she's an amazing writer. And um, this story really is beyond us. And I don't feel any sort of self-consciousness about being the subject of it. I just feel like this is larger than us and um, that it's really written with a lot of care and thoughtfulness and um, that it's a real love letter to herself, to her daughters and to the world. Um, the biggest takeaway, like it's not an instructional book about how to treat Lyme. And that's what we learned the hard way is that everybody has a different experience of it and everybody has a different type of success story. There isn't a one size fits all, but um, it, it's, it gives people an opportunity to deeply em emotionally connect and feel like they're not alone and um, feel like it's okay to try things and go off the beaten path and 
figure out what works for them individually. So Anna, we here at Take Bootcamp are urging every one of our listeners to buy this book and read this book. So can you share with us how our folks can get a copy of your book when it is released? I think it's July 7th. Yes, it's on pre-order at Amazon, Dancing in the Narrows and by Anna Pennenberg. You can also go to my website, AnnaPennenberg.com, A-N-N-A-P-E-N-E-N-B-E-R-G. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with Dana and Anna Pennenberg. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Dana and Anna Pennenberg and their journey with chronic Lyme disease, please go to your local bookseller and purchase Dancing in the Narrows. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, we here at Tick Bootcamp have created a Tick by Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. We'd appreciate it if you would contact us with any suggestions you have for improvements. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our listeners, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you for listening.